our democracy used to be sustained by norms of restraint and forbearance in which politicians and parties didn't sort of play to win by any means necessary, didn't use every tool available to them in the toolkit to thwart their rivals. And that allowed, that spirit of restraint allowed the system to work. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I have a returning guest to discuss the fall. No, not the weather. The fall of civilization. Our previous interview was released September 12th, 2020, and was titled, This is How Liberty Dies, where we discussed the frightening parallels between the evolving political situation in the world, and especially the U.S., and events in multiple failed democracies. Despite these fears, my guest was quite upbeat about the prognosis for the U.S. to avoid a violent authoritarian uprising, noting that Trump was not as smart nor as popular as the leaders of successful revolutions. This was only a few months before the unsuccessful January 6th 2021 coup attempt, and it seems that, for the moment anyway, he was right. I thought it might be fun for us to touch base and see if he might be interested in revising his opinion. If you like what you're hearing, I'd appreciate you to press like on your podcast app, as this helps spread the rational view to others who have not seen it. Uh, Share it on social media if you can. Uh, I'd love to hear from you on the Facebook group, The Rational View. Dr. Stephen Levitsky is the David Rockefeller Professor of Latin American Studies and Professor of Government and Director of the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His research focuses on democratization and authoritarianism, political parties, and weak and informal institutions, mostly in Latin America. He is co-author with Daniel Ziblatt of How Democracies Die, which is a New York Times bestseller and has been published in 22 languages. He is also author of many books regarding politics and authoritarianism in Latin America. His most recent book, also with Daniel Ziblatt, is titled The Tyranny of the Minority. Dr. Levitsky, welcome back to The Rational View. Thanks for having me. So you've been uh, busy since our last interview was September 2020, and a lot has changed in the world since then. Biden won the U.S. election. There was an unsuccessful coup attempt. In our last meeting, you felt that the U.S. was too smart and Trump was too ineffective to have an authoritarian takeover. Do you remain optimistic about our chances to avoid an authoritarian uprising in the U.S.? Well, yes and no. I'm optimistic in the in the in a weak sense, in the sense that I don't, I still don't think it's likely that uh, we will see in the United States the consolidation of an autocracy like we see in Russia or Turkey or in Hungary or Venezuela. Mm. The, uh, it's not, I don't think it's that we're too smart, but the opposition forces um, the in the private sector, in the media, uh, in, in states because of the federal system, 
and in the, the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, relative to other oppositions elsewhere in the world, is well-financed, well-organized, it's unified, it's, it's electorally viable. So the opposition to any emerging autocracy would be pretty strong. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that all is well, far from it. I think we are very likely headed for a period of regime instability, in which we are sliding in and out of crisis, in which there could be um, violence, assassinations, terrorism, street violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be brief episodes of authoritarianism. Um, I think that the next period of years could be highly unstable. Your your new book is called The Tyranny of the Minority, and the Washington Post says Levitsky and Ziblatt write with terrifying clarity about how the forces of the right have co-opted the enshrined rules to exert their tyranny. Is the Republican Party the minority of which you speak? Yeah, the Republican Party has won the popular vote in one election since 1988. The Republican Party has not, in the U.S. Senate, we elect one third of, of the Senate every two years. So it takes six years to fully elect the Senate. Mm-hmm. For every six year block since the year 2000, the Democrats have won the popular vote. The Republicans have uh, controlled the Senate half the time. They've never, over a six year period, won the popular vote for the Senate in the 21st century. So, in terms of, of national electoral majorities, the Republican Party in the 21st century is a clear minority party. Okay. So the U.S. is taken by most people to be an example of how to run a democracy. But many on the right are happy to point out that the U.S. is a republic, not a democracy. And the institutions of government have been put in place to prevent mob rule and the tyranny of the majority. Are you mm-hmm. questioning the wisdom of the founding fathers in your book? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it's the United States is both a republic and a democracy, and the founders knew that. The mm-hmm. democracy that the founders were afraid of was um, was was in fact tyranny of the majority, the the ability of a majority at any moment to impose its will um, free of any individual or minority rights. So the Founders set up what we now call, the word didn't exist in 1787, but what we now call a representative or liberal democracy. That is a democracy in which we elect our governments, uh, voters elect governments, voters do not, citizens do not directly rule, so there's no, there's no direct democracy. We elect our representatives and in which we elect our representatives in a context in which our basic civil liberties are protected. We have a bill of rights. We have an independent judiciary and uh, and a constitution that protects individuals from the whims of the majority. So the United States has never had anything remotely like um, outright majority rule. It is majority rule that is uh, based on indirect uh, uh, rule, the direction of or the election of our representatives, mm-hmm. and always in the context of a protection of minority rights. That is. What political scientists, politicians, journalists for well over a century, for about 150 years, have called modern democracy. So we're both a republic and, and a democracy. The founders were, were, uh, pretty, uh, brilliant guys. They were very, very, they were experienced, very knowledgeable politicians. They put together a, um, a brilliant document, the, the most successful and the oldest written constitution on earth. 
Um, but they were writing in the 18th century. Two, two things that, that we should keep in mind. First of yeah. all, they were writing in a pre-democratic era, mm-hmm. an era before, uh, the, the era of mass suffrage, before anybody even really thought about giving all members, uh, living in a society, regardless of race, gender, property ownership, the right to vote. Nobody yeah. thought in those terms of the 18th century. And second of all, they were writing in a period where the, the Articles of Confederation had just failed. The, uh, the American, uh, uh, the Republic had just been formed. And, uh, the, the, our, our founders were very concerned that the, um, the, the American project would break up, that we would not be able to build a, uh, a nation of 13 states at the time that would hang together, that would avoid anarchy, that would avoid civil war, and most importantly, in, avoid uh, inter- military intervention by the French or the, the British. So there was a great concern as the, as the founders wrote the Constitution in, in the summer of 1787 with finding some sort of compromise that made the system work, that, that held the whole thing together. And so what they did is they, um, they negotiated, they bargained, they reached a bunch of second and third best solutions. In some cases, they improvised. Nobody had ever chosen a leader outside of, of monarchy in any major nation in the world prior to 1787. So mm. presidential election, that was completely new terrain. So mm. these guys were, um, were improvising. They were improvising, they were negotiating, they were bargaining. And what they came up with was not some kind of blueprint for the perfect democratic republic. It was a bunch of second best alternatives. Some of those institutions worked really well. Some of them worked well for a while, but are a bit dated now. And some of them didn't work very well. The Electoral College, for example, never worked the way that Hamilton and others envisioned that it would. Really? So what, what's wrong yeah, with the Electoral College? What, what should it be doing? Well, the, what, what Hamilton believed was that it would be filled with a group of sort of high-minded notables who would be able, who would have the wisdom to kind of provide a check on the, uh, on the electorate. This was sort of a, a not, not a very democratic notion, mm-hmm. but that ultimately these guys would, would provide a check on, on the voters. What he did not anticipate, what none of the framers anticipated was that parties would be involved. The, the founders did not anticipate that American democracy would be dominated by political parties, that parties would emerge. They didn't like political parties really? uh, and they didn't really expect political parties, but parties emerged immediately in the 1800 election uh, and have dominated the working of the electoral college ever since the party with the most electors elects the president. That was not the way the founders anticipated. The problem with it now is that um, the, the presidential candidate who gets fewer votes can win the presidency. And we are the only presidential democracy on the face of the earth where that can happen, where the loser can win the presidency. And uh, I think that's a problem too. So you say that the forces of the right have co-opted the enshrined rules to exert their tyranny. What's, what's, what are examples of, of, of co-opting of the rules? Um, so I'm not sure that we use the language of co-opting rules to exert their tyranny. So that, that's the Washington Post's quote on, on your book. Okay. Yeah, that's not us. Um, let me be clear. Th- this is actually not the Republicans doing. The Republicans are taking advantage of rules that were put in place a very long time ago 
um, that now benefit them. Let me explain very quickly why they benefit the Republicans. Our system, the, the compromises that I discussed a couple of minutes ago, uh, the creation of the Senate, a Senate in which each state has um, two representatives, no matter what the population, mm-hmm. the Electoral College, which is influenced by, which uh, it, in, is also favors smaller states because um, uh, each state gets that equal Senate representation. Um, the filibuster, which is not constitutional, but which emerged in the 19th century, um, these rules, in particular, the Senate and the, the Electoral College favor sparsely populated territories. They favored small states in the beginning because Delaware and New Jersey bargained hard and refused to join the, the, the union unless they got this, what they viewed as essential protection. Mm-hmm. So Delaware drove a really hard bargain, actually threatened, uh, implicitly to maybe align itself with a foreign power rather than join the union. Madison and others gave in and allowed the, the creation of the Senate and, and, and the Electoral College. The, um, so the system has always favored small, sparsely populated states. Over time, as the United States industrialized and urbanized, that, first of all, that the disparity between small and large states grew. And secondly, the, the divide between small and large states became an urban-rural divide. So our system has always favored rural areas. That was always good for Vermont and North Dakota and always bad for Texas and California, but it never had a partisan effect for the first 200 years of our existence Hmm. because both parties, whatever they were, recently Democrats and Republicans, had urban and rural wings. So it didn't have a partisan impact. It's only in the 21st century that the nature of our politics has shifted and the Republicans have been, have become an overwhelmingly rural or, or small town-based party, a party that that does well in sparsely populated territories, and the Democrats have become an overwhelmingly urban party, a party that does well in urban metropolitan centers. So the rules, again, created centuries ago, are now favor systematically favor the Republicans, which is what allows the Republicans to lose the popular vote for the Senate but control the Senate, allows um, Donald Trump to lose the popular vote in 2016 and perhaps again in 2024 and still win the presidency. Mm-hmm. So the, we have these archaic rules that are favoring rural and sparsely populated areas. What, what should we be doing? What, what changes? I mean, these are the rules that are in place. They're playing by the rules. This Absolutely. You know, kind of de- defines the country to a certain extent. Yep. What changes are you proposing to, to make things less tyrannical, I guess, is the word you would use. Yeah, I mean, keep it, don't, um, keep in mind, we use the term tyranny of the minority in the title in juxtaposition to tyranny of the majority because our system it was at least supposedly set up to combat tyranny of the majority. Sure. And that's partially true. And that's been very successful. But the argument that we make is that there's a downside to institutions that are set up to combat tyranny of the majority, which is you can protect the minority party so much that you end up with a, and it's a little overstated to say tyranny of, of the minority, but you end up with what is in effect minority rule. So what we call for in the book, in the last chapter of the book, we make 15 proposals that would that would help to make the United States a more majoritarian democracy, a, a democracy in which 
the party with the with the most votes wins and the party with the most votes governs. These are not radical changes. These are changes that would put the United States in line with other democracies in the world. So this includes a constitutional right to vote. Most democracies have a constitutional right to vote. We do not. We have a constitutional right to bear arms, but not a constitutional right to vote. So a uh, constitutionalized right to vote and a set of measures that make it easy for Americans to register and vote. In most democracies in the world, government wants people to vote. The government makes it easy for people to vote. In some countries, it is mandatory to vote. It's civic obligation. In other countries, you automatically become registered to vote when you're 18. In most democracies, voting takes place on a holiday or, or on a Sunday. There are a whole series of measures that we advocate for that would make it easier for Americans to vote. That's one thing. Secondly, we advocate for getting rid of the electoral college. This is something every other presidential democracy on earth has done so that we directly elect our president, guaranteeing that he or she who wins the most votes becomes president. We call for elimination of the filibuster. So it cannot be the case that 41 senators systematically and permanently thwart the, the will of majorities in the Senate. Uh, we call for term limits on the on Supreme Court justices, probably 18-year terms. We are the only democracy, established democracy in the world without either term limits or a retirement age for justices. So it should not be the case that that um, just the Supreme Court has to be independent. Justices have to be independent, but they shouldn't be in on the court for 40 years, two generations beyond the majority that that nominated and confirmed them. So mm. we advocate for term limits. Um, we advocate one, one reform that is virtually impossible that we, but we, which we call for is a more proportional system in the Senate so that each state has a number of senators roughly proportionate to its population. California should have more senators than, uh, Vermont and, and Wyoming. Mm. Um, that's extremely difficult to do because all 50 states have to agree to that to, um, <laughs> to, to for it to go forward. So that, that's, that's a, that's pretty pie in the sky. But yeah. all of these, um, all these reforms work to, uh, allow majorities, electoral majorities to win power and to govern, obviously without putting at risk minority rights. We, we, we do not touch the independence of the judiciary. We don't touch federalism. We maintain a bicameral legislature and obviously maintain the Bill of Rights. So none of this would pose a threat. To minority rights, it's a, it's an enhancement of majority rule without threatening minority rights. But obviously, the Republicans benefit from these rules. They're not going to agree to any changes that take power away from them. How do how do you move forward with the situation that we have? Well, that's true in some cases, but not others. Um, it, for example, it's it there the the. Primary beneficiary of the electoral college has varied from o over the over the years, and in the middle part of the 20th century, it, there were no cases in the mid part of the 20th century where the loser of the popular vote actually won. But the advantage seemed to lie with the Democrats, and it was actually Republicans who pushed more for in the 1950s for elect for the abolition of the electoral college. We came very close in the late 60s after the after George Wallace nearly through the 1968 election into the Congress, both parties supported abolishing the Electoral College. Mm. Uh, President Nixon supported it. It uh, had an overwhelming majority in the House. It had a majority in the Senate. 
was didn't get the two thirds necessarily necessary in the Senate. So it's it's not the case that the Republicans always benefit from from the electoral college. This is something where that shifts over time, and we just think it. No matter who benefits from it, it's unfair that the loser of the ele- of the popular vote wins the presidency. Uh, another thing that that doesn't clearly benefit the Republicans is filibuster. I mean, there's a world. It's entirely possible that in the 2024 election, the Republicans win the presidency and the Senate. They have a very favorable uh, scenario for the Senate. It could, and in which case, McConnell, whoever the the, the uh, Republican leader of the Senate is at the time, will be under a lot of pressure to eliminate the filibuster. Right? That's my prediction, and I, for one, will support that. That's really bad for the Democrats in the short term, mm. um, but really important for our democracy in the long term. So that it, it's far from clear that they that the persistence of the filibuster benefits the Republicans. Um, just just before we it, move on, just maybe yeah. a quick explainer of what the filibuster is and why it's important Sorry. to get rid of it. So the, the filibuster is is an odd uh, an odd thing. It's it's what allows individual senators to prevent a cloture vote, or it, it, a cloture vote means that debate is ended and you vote on a measure. So if 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 um, in most democracies. It only takes a bare majority of the parliament to, uh, to vote for cloture and to move on and, and hold a vote. Okay. In the United States, uh, the initially you didn't, uh, e- e- uh, even a, a small number of, of, of injuries could block a cloture vote. In, um, in the early 20th century, about a century ago, it, uh, it was raised to two thirds. You needed two thirds of the Senate to, um, to move on to have a vote in 1975 was lower to 60. So that means you need 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to actually end debate and, and, and hold a vote, which allows a minority of 41 senators to consistently block, to prevent a bill from coming up to a vote. Um, and mm. in the, for much of the 20th century, that was a weapon that politicians in the Senate used sparingly. Even though they could stop legislation, they didn't because it was known that it's not appropriate in a democracy for 41 senators to systematically and permanently thwart 59 senators. It was seen as as an emergency um, measure only in, in, in sort of really serious cases. In, in, in point of practice, it was mostly civil rights issues that it was used for. Hmm. But starting in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and then full scale in the 21st century, it became something that's used in every single vote. So we now have a super, in, a, in practice, a super majority rule. You have to have 60 votes to get anything passed in the U.S. Senate. Um, wow. Not only does that lead to a lot of obstruction, it, it, it makes it difficult for us to get anything done as a nation, but it's also, it systematically allows a minority party to thwart a majority party. And that, at the end of the day, is, is not democratic. Yeah. The, I think in, in your previous book, you, you 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 talked about how each party has to allow the other one to govern when they're not in power, and we're in a situation right now that we're this this allowance to government to govern just doesn't happen. So I can see right. why this is a, a problem for a democratic institution. Right. We used to our democracy used to be sustained by norms of restraint and forbearance, in which. Um, 
politicians and parties didn't sort of play to win by any means necessary, didn't use every tool available to them in the toolkit to thwart their rivals. And that allowed, that spirit of restraint allowed the system to work. We have a very complicated system in the United States. It worked when politicians played with restraint. It does not work when politicians use every institutional tool available to thwart their opponents and and to, to win by any means necessary. And that, unfortunately, is what we've slid into in the last three decades or so. Yeah, really, there's, it's a hyper-polarized situation yeah. uh, where, you know, there's just this anger and hatred, it seems, rather than, you know, calm debate about issues. It's, it's more playing to the memes and the social media that people, that govern people's lives, I think. So, I mean, major world events have kind of taken the news spotlight off the slow self-destruction of your democracy. Um, the Republican machine has had several years to plan their strategy for the upcoming elections. What, what preparations have you seen on both sides, uh, that, that you're concerned about or that you like, uh, for, for the next election? Well, I don't think there's been, I mean, one very positive preparation is there, the, um, there was a reform to the Electoral Count Act, um, bipartisan reform that made it much more difficult for someone to to pull off what the Trump team tried to pull off in 2020. So uh, a, a series of measures that would make it just much more difficult to simply reject the electoral count vote, the electoral vote count okay. in uh, in January, like the Republicans attempted to do and might have actually pulled off had Trump had uh Mike Pence behaved in a, in a different way. That's now much harder to do. There's been a reform that that makes that much more difficult, which is positive, very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, the Republicans haven't planned much. I mean, the the Republican leadership after January 6th, in particular, but after the defeat, initially believed that that Trump was um, politically dead. Um, the I think the the principal reason why Mitch McConnell uh, did not work to convict Trump in the Senate in the second impeachment case. Trump had Trump been convicted in the Senate after he was impeached, he couldn't have run in 2024. Mm-hmm. And I think the main reason why, why McConnell refused to sort of run the risk or pay the political price of working to convict Trump, because he could have easily mobilized the votes necessary to convict him, chose not to. Did it not because he likes Trump, not because he supports Trump, but because he thought Trump was politically dead, that there was no way that he could come back and be the candidate again. So most Republican leaders didn't anticipate that Trump would be running away with the nomination in in late 2023. There, there's really no plan. Um, I don't I see no evidence that Trump's team has any sort of a plan to steal the election. I think they think they can win, and I think they have a practically a coin flip chance of winning in 2024, especially given the Electoral College. But what what's one thing that's different, two things are really different from 2016. One is that Trump has a very different approach to governing than he had in 2016. 2016, he didn't expect to win. 2016, he didn't have a plan. He didn't have a team. So he relied on establishment Republicans to fill his cabinet and his government. Mm-hmm. He, uh, 
now despises and distrusts those folks and will fill his cabinet with loyalists this time and has a plan, as has been widely reported, to purge and pack the state bureaucracy in critical areas, including the Justice Department, so as to politicize our state institutions even further. This is a sort of classic um, initial move of elected autocrats. Now, whether he'd get away with it is an open question, but if Trump wins, he will have a much, much more serious go at autocracy than he did in 2016. Wow. So overall, do you think the U.S. democracy is on a more or less solid footing after Biden's administration? That's a great question. Um, hard to say. I mean, it is, it is, I cannot overstate how important it is that we had a turnover in 2020, that Trump lost and was removed from office, and that we have a, uh, you know, like it or not, a small D Democratic government in office today. So turnover was really important. Um, but the problems that gave, they, the underlying problems that gave rise to the crisis, the, the Trump crisis, those problems persist. And those are two. One is the radicalization of the Republican Party into what is no longer a fully democratic force. That has not changed, unfortunately. We thought it might change after January 6th. It clearly has not. Um, and secondly, are the, is the institutional structure that we talked about earlier, the, the fact that our institutions protect and empower what is now an authoritarian minority party. Mm-hmm. So um, until those two things change, until the Republican Party de-radicalizes and returns to a fully pro-democratic orientation and or we reform our constitution our, our constitution and other institutions in a way that empowers majorities and and doesn't allow an authoritarian minority party to govern us we're going to be vulnerable there's no guarantee um there's no gar- there's certainly no certainty that we're sliding into authoritarianism but we will continue to be vulnerable to it hmm. so what should be done? Uh, what What do you think is the best path to safety? In the short term, it is, uh, in my view, the formation of a broad, multi-party coalition against Trumpism. This is something that kind of seems obvious, but we, we really have not done it, and we're not even close to doing it. But every political force, every political actor who is not a Trumpist Ought to be lined up in a single, in a single coalition to defend democracy. That means right wing business people, right wing religious leaders and uh, conservative politicians, Mitt Romney, Liz Cheney, you name it. Everybody who is not, who, who is, who believes that Trump is and Trumpism is a threat to democracy ought to be in a single coalition. And that means that Right-wingers need to do something they've never done in their life, which is support a Democratic candidate. But it also means that progressives have to make the concessions needed to make room at the table for right-of-center political actors. Those two things have not really happened yet. And, um, you know, that that wouldn't be a world-changing event to build that coalition, but it would ensure that MAGA loses the, 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 the MAGA forces lose the next election. Um, it, it, it would, it might only shift three, four, five percent of the electorate, but that's enough to ensure that small D democratic forces work, uh, win. So 
In the short term, there, we must form a very broad coalition that spans from AOC and Bernie Sanders on the left to Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney on the right. Um, and in the, in the medium and long term, we need to begin to reform our institutions. We, we forget this, but the, America has a very long tradition of working to make our system more democratic. George Washington in 1787 wrote a letter to his nephew called, called, describing the newly written constitution as an imperfect document and saying that it's going to be up to future generations to improve it. And really, that's something that we have done from the Bill of Rights, which was passed two years after the Constitution, mm -hmm. to the expansion of suffrage, to the Reconstruction reforms, to the Progressive Era reforms, um, to the Civil Rights Era. We have, for 200 years, worked to make our system more democratic. In the last 50 years, we just stopped. Americans stopped doing that work of making the system more democratic. So we mm -hmm. need to return to an older American tradition of reform, of democratic reform. Um, it's not easy because the U.S. Constitution is really hard to reform. But not all the, reform, the reforms we're advocating are constitutional, and, um, and constitutional reform has been possible in the past. So um, in the medium term, it's not something that will happen overnight. It's not something that will happen before the 2024 election. But Americans need to, to step back and think about um, building a better democracy. Indeed. Well, thank you for, for sharing your opinions with us and your book. It uh, sounds very uh, important uh, at this time. And I think uh, I urge everyone to go out and, and take a look at it. And thank you for, for sharing on The Rational View. For spending your time with us, uh, I'd love to send you a, a Rational View t-shirt. Uh, so that uh, awesome. just for, for spending your time and sharing your views. So thank you so much. Thank you, Al. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.